Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we'll be discussing the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We are joined by Dr Josephine Gwynn from the University of Sydney. Dr Gwynn has worked closely with the Aboriginal community and her research focuses on young Aboriginal people and their nutrition, physical activity and well-being. Dr Gwynn is also a member of the Charles Perkins Centre, which focuses on improving global health. Hello, Joe, and welcome to the program. Hi, hi. Thanks for inviting me. In a health context, Indigenous Australians, when compared with non-Indigenous Australians, are 2.7 times as likely to smoke, 2.1 times as likely to die before their fifth birthday, and pass away on average 17 to 18 years earlier than their non-Indigenous counterparts. Upon reading information like this, published in the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's Australia's Health 2018 in Brief Report, it becomes clear that there is a gap between the health of Indigenous Australians and of non-Indigenous Australians. What is this gap and why is it occurring? They're two very big questions. <laughs> <laughs> and important, very important questions to understand. And I think it's, um, if I may just divert just very, very briefly, um, just uh, make it very clear that I'm not an Aboriginal um, or Torres Strait Islander woman. Uh, that I've worked with communities for over 30 years or so, but um, my experience is, um, and I'll be talking about those, those that work um, and my experience and, um, and views. However, it's important to note that, you know, my background is, is very much white middle-class Australia. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, therefore, even though I reflect upon that and work within communities, that is um, part of the journey that um, is, comes with me. Um, mm. inevitably, so I think it's important to make that really clear. Yes, the gap. So the gap um, in health is, uh, is is not shifting very well. Mm. And in fact, the federal government is doing a bit of a refresh around the gap in health um, that exists between Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous people in Australia. And at, at long last, and after repeated uh, efforts over a long period of time by Aboriginal people, their peak organisations um, and Aboriginal leaders, they are taking on at least a partnership approach to the Closing the Gap strategy. Um, if not, and where they should be moving to, is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander leadership um, mm. around the Closing the Gap strategy. This has been absent until now. Right. Um, informed, but absent, largely led by the federal government and its various um, organisational components. So uh, I think when we see that refresh uh, start to play out, we may start to see change. Um, and that's an important thing to recognise. An example, um, now I'm diverting slightly, but it gives a bit of context, that's all right. um, is that um, last year in the COVID, when COVID hit, uh, the federal government um, and the peak organisations and the commun Aboriginal communities were very concerned about the impact on um, Aboriginal communities. The federal government um, asked asked the leaders in the community to what they what should happen, followed the leadership of the community of its peak organisations, and there was an outstanding result within Aboriginal communities around mm. Australia. Um, the rates of COVID were six times lower than the rest of the Australian population. No one died, no one was in intensive care, and there were very, very few people. Um, and I don't think there were any in remote and regional communities. Uh, largely, it was in urban communities. 
So this is an outstanding, um, mm. outstanding result. It, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities led the way for Indigenous communities internationally as well. The critical thing in this is that the communities were asked to lead and were given the trust to lead the response in their communities and to tailor the response for each community's needs. And they did that very successfully. Now, Australia's been very slow to acknowledge that Aboriginal trust around the leadership is critical for health and critical for the improvement of closing the gap. Um, this has been repeatedly asked in reports, in statements, the Uluru Statement, the Redfern Statement, um, and yet it largely falls on deaf ears when it comes to the crunch. So coming back to what you asked earlier, you know, essentially why do we see these things? Let's take smoking rates, for example, because this points to the inter intergenerational effect of 230 years of, um, you know, marginalisation, um, extreme poverty, disadvantage, um, and everything that that entails, and the impact of that intergenerationally. intergenerationally. When people, when Aboriginal people um, were removed from country after the British invaded, when they were put on, um, you know, put into missions uh, and stations, by that I mean, you know, country in the rural areas, mm -hmm. etc., they were totally dependent on food provision. And the food that was provided was appalling. Right. Now, the context of this, I suppose, is also that, you know, food in, in um, provisioned was, 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 um, was poor in other parts of Australia, but particularly so for Aboriginal people who were dependent, were not financially independent, um, were in fact not included in the census till 1967. Mm. So the food that people received was, you know, sugar, um, tea, cigarettes, um, flour, and occasional um, poor cuts of meat. It's largely the sort of diet which caused all sorts of health problems, but also caused a sort of um, dependency as well. You know, if, you, if you, you're handing out cigarettes for people to have, then it becomes part of what people do and has an intergenerational effect. So there's, there's that component to all of this, which is very dominant, you know, that there's mm. been no... that the effect of all this is still still felt very much um, in many many communities. Um, of course, the the removal of children um, is you know a, a, a terrible thing that mm, happened mm. and continues to happen and has enormous impact on the way communities um, can tr feel they can um, cannot trust government organisations, including you know health services, um, and certainly many don't feel safe in coming to. Uh, mainstream health services because of the, their experiences of racism and this, start, this, this is still current today. So there's all that very complex, very long history of all of that in Australia which still still exists and still plays out in the health statistics that you just, just talked about. Um, another factor to all this is the availability of appropriate health services that people feel they can come to and they can feel culturally safe. This is a, a real problem for um, many Aboriginal people, and it puts people off going to going to see the doctor. You know, it's, mm, uh, mm. and when the support services also aren't there to to to, to provide people with the necessary health supports, then that's another factor. There is a very good network of Aboriginal medical services across Australia. These services do provide support um, to Aboriginal people. They 
still need to be um, further supported and ramped up in terms of the services they can provide. Some are, are, are better resourced than others. Uh, things like dental services are just coming into some of the some services which should have had these a long time ago. Mm. So there's um, you know those are sort of complex backgrounds. Uh, background. Not every um, Aboriginal community, of course, is um, you know experiencing um, the the the, the extreme poverty um, that existed, you know, or mm, still exists mm. in some communities. Uh, uh, but everybody will experience the effect of that, that, which, you know, their grandparents, parents and grandparents, and back from there experienced on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis. I work with some, some communities in, um, in New South Wales, remote communities who do not have a food supply. Right have to travel, and there's no public transport, of course, in these areas, so they have to travel with their own um, personal transport to get to the nearest town to purchase food. The water supply has a history of being um, unsafe, um, unpalatable, and is not trusted. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, you still have communities in that situation in this day and age, and that doesn't help health. No. Um, it doesn't mean that people can, you know, can live a healthy life. Hmm. Although it's difficult to access not the basics of life. Building on on top of that, so Australia is a first world country, but it sounds like the way you're describing it to me that some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people seem to be subjected to third world conditions. Is yeah, yeah, and I think that's 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 been recognised internationally, um, and is to Australia's shame that this um, continues to persist for some communities. I should point out um, that there is uh, enormous resilience within communities um, and that there are enormous strengths within communities. And as with the COVID response, if communities are given the trust to lead their own response and lead, if not you know, co-partner, but preferably lead, uh, lead the services within their communities, lead the responses within their communities, then there are really good results. And Australia has to be much more... Um, responsive to that call and to the evidence that exists around the positive effect of that approach. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with Dr Josephine Gwen from the University of Sydney. Let's talk about you for a moment. What is your background with working with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community? What is your story? <laughs> my story? Well, I suppose my um, I'm a, a slightly older woman now, um, and my story is uh, the first half of my life was I had middle-class Sydney white upbringing, mm. not affluent, but certainly middle-class. My mother's family were all people from um, country Victoria, so I was the first generation on her side to grow up in the city. Yeah. I, I never heard stories about the Aboriginal people that they that must have been in those parts of Victoria, particularly when her part of her family arrived in the gold rush. It just wasn't part of the, the history handed down to me. And I think that was very common uh, in Australia. Um, mm. It's only now that we're starting to talk about, well, you know, my ancestors didn't just go to Western Victoria, find land, empty land. They, mm. they had to move people off the land before right. they could you know, could could use it, um, and they took over that land. And there's no dialogue about there's no dialogue about that in my in my family that side. My father's side, my father's Anglo-Irish, so he arrived here after the Second World War. 
um, met my mother in the Antarctic Division, which is another story. And he, um, so he had, he was new to this country and, um, and brought. So I suppose I have a, a very strong roots in my Irish, Irish heritage, Celtic heritage, like many Australians. Mm. Mm. But um, so you know, and I was vaguely aware of discussions around what, at that stage, was the tail end of the period of assimilation. Mm. Which was preceded the the, the the sort of policy period around um, ensuring that uh, Aboriginal people had um, the rights to their own decisions and their own lives and their own communities. And, um, assimilation was all about you know bringing everybody together. We're all not, we're not different. We'll all be the same. Which did not acknowledge the um, importance of Aboriginal culture, as we're doing today. We understand the real. Um, importance of Aboriginal cultural knowledge to the management of Australia's climate, um, to the management of Australia's health. Now we're only just starting to understand and appreciate the richness of that knowledge and culture, which has been a long time coming. But um, 30 years ago, uh, myself and my husband moved to live for a few years in remote East Arnhem Land right. in a remote community. And that was really the life-changing event to me. For me, um, I did not realise—I did not didn't realise much at all, really, about Aboriginal communities. I did mm. not understand the depth of racism that existed amongst my uh, fellow white people in Australia um, until we lived on a in, a in a smallish area where there was a mining community as well. Um, and this was the Wanandiliakwa people of East Arnhem Land. Um, I did not realise the extent... I didn't realise racism existed very much. I didn't understand the depth of it hmm. in Australia and the breadth of it. And I didn't also didn't understand anything much about Aboriginal communities. And right. I, I had we had the most um, extraordinary, um, extraordinary life for a couple of years... I grew to understand about Aboriginal languages, the, 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 how people can speak five or six languages, uh, and there's a richness of Aboriginal languages that exist that I knew nothing about, and I don't think at that time many people in Australia were aware of. Mm. I was very privileged to to work closely with some members of the of those communities around a particular health issue in the community. Um, and I was very privileged to have the wisdom of one of the tribal elders help me along the way um, with the work and guide the work that I, what we started to do. He was a very strong influence and to have had the privilege of a, working closely with traditional people and get their wisdom and their guidance on our initial journey, my initial journey in working with Aboriginal communities was an, was an incredible privilege and has guided me ever since. Right. And so, I mean, there, I, I just could not believe the things I heard um, non-Indigenous people say. Um, I just couldn't believe it. And incidences that happened, um, you know, it, it still profoundly, profoundly um, disturbs me to this day. And I know these things haven't gone away. Um, they haven't changed. Um, so... Uh, currently, I'm uh, one of the investigators on an uh, Australian Research Council grant um, led by an Aboriginal academic at the University of Sydney, Associate Professor John Gilroy. Right. And we're looking at uh, the 
Indigenous workforce, they're both the sort of retention factors, but what's the push-pull factors for people staying in a job or leaving a job in the disability, healthcare and um, aged care services? And whilst that's a... Pro- that's a, a um, still uh, a research project in being rolled out so we, we can't talk about the results we don't know those yet right, but right. The, the the research that informed the uh, re- that research that we're currently doing may have made it very clear that racism exists in Australia very profoundly mm. it's part of inst- institutional racism exists and uh, a very um, a very um, well-known um, and good academic has written a paper on this recently um, and had that recently published um, uh, and explains what, what does this look like and what is it. It's a very good read. I could dig it out somewhere if you, you were interested. Um, and in very informative. Anyway, that's the diversion. So I divert. So <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Bring me back. So after um, when we, we left... We left East Arnhem Land after a few years and came to live in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And I and continued to, when I started work at the University of Newcastle, where I worked for, oh, it must have been quite a while now, maybe 15 years, right. maybe more. And I did my PhD there, but I also worked at the privilege of working with key Aboriginal leaders uh, in both at the university, but also outside the university, um, in relation to curriculum, concrete curriculum content and research activity, um, and I started my PhD at that point working with the North Coast communities. Hmm. Uh, so I was uh, running a both my my own um, PhD, but also a, a project, a research project around nutrition and physical activity amongst the children, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal children on the North Coast and was there for about, we did this project for about 10 years. It was a very strong capacity building aspect to that. We employed people locally, people locally led the project in their communities and we had a strong Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community governance structure over that research which built up over that time. So there, that was my next sort of big lengthy contact, I suppose, mm. around working closely with communities. Um, and then since then, uh, when I've moved to the University of Sydney, I've been working with the Post Centre for Indigenous Health uh, um, based there and some of and many of the communities that um, the Post Centre works with across New South Wales um, and indeed across Australia. So that's sort of in brief. My my experience in Australia, we have about eighty two and a half thousand medical practitioners, but based on two thousand and nineteen data from the National Indigenous Australians Agency, of the eighty two and a half thousand, there are only six hundred and ninety registered Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander health practitioners mm. in the nation. Is it important when it comes to successfully closing the gap that we have more Indigenous medical practitioners? Absolutely, absolutely. And I know Newcastle University um, sort of led the way a bit with, at least initially, with um, supporting um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people through uh, medical degrees and then later on nursing and allied health degrees. Um, and then that's, you know, now across the univers- across Australia, the universities largely do this. More efforts required in training, much more effort. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, that's, that requires uh, supporting people, supporting people to 
uh, get to university and then whilst they're at university be supported every step of the way. People face, uh, can face a lot of difficulties um, in terms of relocating to do a degree, completing degree with community and family responsibilities and also participating in an environment that that is largely still run by the the mainstream organisations, you know, mm. uh, non-Indigenous organisations, uh, which may or may not make it easy for students to actually move through the processes required to complete the degree. Uh, mm. So this is, uh, and there and there are, there are um, universities put forward various um, plans. So, for example, at the University of Sydney, there's the One Sydney Many People Strategy, which has just been released, which is led by um, Professor Jack, um, Lisa Jackson Pulver. And you know, this puts puts this out there, and uh, and I know other universities do the same thing. You know, same sort of thing provides that strong, tight support to people at mm. the University of Newcastle, Wallatooka. Um, institute there has a long history of successfully supporting students but certainly more needs to be put in and that's more in terms of resources and funding. If we're serious about this and serious about building um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander capacity in health then we've got to put more time, money and support into this to enable the students to navigate the system and enter the workforce prepared and confident enough to deliver services. In terms of demographic on on this topic, in the in the 2016 uh, Australian census, the Indigenous community made up 2.8% of Australia's population. Because of this smaller population, is that a contributor to the smaller number of Indigenous medical practitioners? Um, proportionally, it may be, but the, I think the the I mean, the, so I haven't looked at the figures to see how that runs proportionally, whether it's similar to non-Indigenous. Um, graduates proportional to the community, but I, I am I I understand that it's not, and that you know the reasons I've just said previously about needing a lot more yep. support, yep. time, and money, and structures to support people through the system is really really important, and also because there's a higher burden of poor health. This requires uh, require and, and a higher burden of complex health problems. This requires really um, like a like a, a wraparound of support and un- cultural understanding and that requires more better resourcing as well. Better resourcing early on so that people don't end up in a situation with complex health problems um, that then, you know, are, are problematic for them, their community. Mm. And, yeah. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with Dr Josephine Gwen from the University of Sydney. I mean, research shows that, as you stated um, previously, Indigenous Australians are at times reluctant to get proper treatment in medical institutions. Uh, one reason for this could be because it could be their first time leaving their community. Hmm. But an important role in these institutions is Aboriginal liaison officers. What, hmm. what are the roles of these liaison officers and how do they break down any cultural or language barriers that may be present? Yeah, so it's um, pe- people's reluctance, and I should make it really, really clear, is around the racism that they experience when they get into these, uh, uh, not just to the services, and um, but to the journey along the ways of the services as well. So coming to a place, if you're required to leave a, a, a rural area and come to Sydney, you know, you've got to get on a plane, you've got to get here, mm, you've got to go mm. through the experience of being at the airport, and all along the way, 
there can be experiences of racism. And it's very, very difficult for people. Um, and so I think it's really important that just, you know, not to say, well, people don't turn up. Well, people don't turn up for a reason. Hmm. You know, there's, it's not that it's just, you know, oh, I don't care. You know, they don't, they turn, people turn up because the service isn't, isn't, isn't appropriate or because right. there's not enough sufficient support. There's, um, and, you know, but AMS is a really good. They're very Aboriginal medical services. They provide somebody to support people through their, their health journey at every step and ensure that, you know, their needs are well understood and addressed. And the health workers and Aboriginal liaison officers are, are extraordinary people. They provide so much support um, and are really an essential part of the healthcare team in a, in a hospital or healthcare system. So they will do all sorts of things. Um, their role is very varied. In fact, somewhere I read that um, you know a liaison officer is almost like a um, similar to, to to social work. I'm not um, implying that they're the same, but there's a lot of that sort of support for um, support for the individual and their family. And it's not just support in navigating a very complex health system, but support in navigating getting to the service. Um, if you come to the to a service and you don't have family in the area where you stay, how do you travel? How do you navigate? Um, if you're from a rural area, how do you navigate public transport systems? These big hospitals are very overwhelming, and the liaison officer's role is really critical there in ensuring that people receive the care that they need. It also may mean navigating the clinical environment. Uh, communication between the nursing staff, the hospital staff and the person themselves, assisting the person to understand what's being, what, their, what their health issue is and what they're required to do um, and making that process less, um, less confrontational, less difficult because people um, who you know, haven't been to a large hospital before. Very, very overwhelming and the liaison officers are really, really critical for that success of that. Transitioning now back to the closing the gap strategy specifically, billions of dollars have gone into this strategy and of the seven targets, only two have been met since it begun in 2007. Mm-hmm. As we touched upon a little bit before, what, what is working with this strategy and really what needs to be done differently? Um, well, yes, I think that's what the, finally the federal government seems to be realising is that this does have to be done differently and this means you have the, the process has to be led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their organisations, communities and peak bodies and the refresh around the closing the gap, at least the narrative around the, the refresh is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community leadership um, and this hasn't happened t- till now. So up till now, this hasn't occurred, uh, and that's been one of the critical um, gaps in the gap, if you like. Mm-hmm. And without that, without that um, understanding from the communities and community leaderships, community leadership, um, it's it's not surprising that there's been challenges. There are a couple of successes, I think. Um, there's been around um, uh, children, young children enrolled in early childhood education. Um, and looking at halving the gap for um, Year 12 attainment. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, big, big, really important targets like closing the gap in life expectancy, well, that's not on track. Halving the gap in child mortality rates, that's not on track. And you've hmm. got to be able, you've got to have community leadership to address these, these really 
profound um, matters. You can't, they just can't sit in Canberra and be rolled out from there. Mm, right. You've got to work directly with the people. Yep, and have their leadership. They understand their communities, they understand culture, they understand what's happening and can really guide services in how best to deliver and can deliver, given the right infrastructure and support, can deliver the services. In fact, in some parts of um, Australia, the Nungari, who are uh, cultural medical healers, are actually employed in the hospital system to work with Aboriginal people. I know of this happening in about two, two or three hospitals around the country, mm. which is a step towards the sort of environment that needs to be created. And uh, I know there was some work done the, the, with the Catherine Hospital um, in the Northern Territory to re reorientate it. It had some of the worst um, worst retention rates for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients in Australia, and it turned this around by, you know, making sure that cultural being culturally competent was everybody's business mm. and listening to the community about what they needed from that hospital and their retention rates have improved considerably. Someone who has been highly critical of the strategy has been Senator Pauline Hanson. In a 2020 parliamentary speech, she stated, and I quote, Closing the gap should be about treating all Australians equally and on an individual needs basis, not one based on race. These government policies that are based on race are themselves discriminatory and racist. Stop feeding the resentment in this country and you'll naturally close the gap. And stop playing the victim if we are to move forward as a united country. End quote. What are your thoughts on, on her points? <laughs> well, this is a, this is a tired old um, uh, standpoint, isn't it, right. yep. uh, that one would expect. Um, of course, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture has had a very different experience in Australia over the past 230 years. People have, I've talked to elders who have, you know, who are in their 80s, they had to sit in a separate part of the cinema mm. or the picture theatre in a place like Taree, you know, when they were growing up. There, mm. was, a set, there was apartheid. There was a, a, a not, um, not overtly stated, but an apartheid system existed. People had to be out of town by six o'clock over right. the bridge. People couldn't go into certain shops. And this still, this still exists today amongst the families Aboriginal families, their, their, their grandparents talk about this, their parents talk about this. And when you've got a systemic racism, this mm. is when you mm. have an apartheid system, essentially, um, and where we lived on Grid, um, on, I should talk, say the name, on, in East Arnhem Land, um, that system existed within the medical service. You know, the medical service for Aboriginal population yep. was, was, was um, quarter-funded compared to the medical system for the um, mining company. Now, background to all of that, politics and all the rest of it, I know. But it is different. Aboriginal mm. and Torres Strait Islander people have had a very different pathway over the past 230 years, and that has to be addressed and redressed and requires a specific focus. So I guess, in, a, in many ways, the thought process that uh, people like Senator Hanson have gone through is quite narrow in, uh, in that respect, that they are not mm. um, fully aware... Um, of the issues and it's and how much it has affected. Yep. Yep. It, yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're not aware. And, I mean, I still find that amongst the students that I teach, um, that there's a real, uh, broadly speaking, there's a lack of knowledge in the Australian community. Hmm. 
Um, and there's still some people who say, oh, you know, they just get a lot, they get a lot more services and money and da da da. You know, there's this sort of narrative that is so um, racist and ill-informed, right. um, and doesn't understand or not, doesn't know about the huge burden of complex health conditions that Aboriginal people have. The, the barriers to participation in the workforce that Aboriginal people face. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. And, you know, it's, 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 it's ignorance which feeds racism compounded by, I don't know what, it's just there. It's uh, very, very difficult. And so those views do exist. I think we're being more effective, I hope, we're being more effective yep. in, the, in mm-hmm. the country's narrative around this, um, being more informed uh, but unfortunately, unfortunately, you still hear statements like that. We're almost out of time, Joe. But are there any yep. points you would like to bring up that have not yet been addressed? Um, no, I think we've we've sort of covered a um, a wide wide range of issues. I think the key message, and I think I've probably been repeating myself on this, is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people can and must lead mm. the services and responses to the issues in the community. And we, we have every reason to be very confident in that. There are highly skilled, highly experienced uh, people that it's an, would be absolutely an absolute privilege to work with and be guided by, more importantly. And the federal government uh, hopefully will start to hear this message more and more loudly. The COVID response just being an absolute excellent standout example of what happens when we listen to Aboriginal communities and are guided and led by them. Well, thank you, Joe, for sharing your insight with us today on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. We, we appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. My guest today was Dr. Josephine Gwynn from the University of Sydney. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.